Well, within the universe of Star Trek, within the universe of Star Trek, one of the most fearsome enemies is the Borg. The Borg is a collective society made up of billions and billions of individual beings on thousands and thousands of spaceships, but every single one of those individuals is linked to a single hive mind. And therefore, the Borg is really a single entity with a single will. The Borg's goal is to capture other beings including humans, and assimilate them into the collective where they will lose all personal identity and be joined to the hive mind. It's a horrific fate. It's a horrific fate. When the Borg attacks, its victims hear the following chilling words. We are the Borg. You will be assimilated. Resistance is futile. Some of you could have finished that for me. Now, in one Star Trek episode, something especially tragic happens. The hero, the heroic captain of the starship Enterprise, Jean-Luc Picard, is captured by the Borg. His true true crew try and rescue him, but they're unable to. And they're forced to retreat. And within minutes, they find they're receiving an incoming transmission from the Borg, informing them of their imminent destruction. And to their utter horror, they realize that the Borg speaker is none other than their beloved captain. He's been totally assimilated, and it leaves them appalled, aghast, dismayed. Brothers and sisters, this is how the scriptures talk about the world. The world is hungry for you. Its intent is to conform you to itself, to assimilate you into its way of thinking, its way of behaving, its way of believing. And in every age, this pull toward worldliness, the pull to love the world and the things of the world, to get entangled with them, it's so strong. We're going to see that in our passage in Ezra today. We're going to see that God's people have started to be assimilated by the world. And it's horrific. It's appalling. But here's the question. Will we be willing and able to recognize it when it's happening to us? Please turn in your Bibles to Ezra chapter 9. Ezra chapter 9. Ezra is a little bit before the poetry books, so a little bit to the left of middle. And if you're using the blue Bibles in the seats in front of you, it's on page 395. So the setting for this passage is that Ezra the priest has arrived in Jerusalem from Babylon, leading a group of exiles, and he has a commission from the king of Persia to teach the law of the Lord in Israel. And our passage picks up the narrative four and a half months after Ezra has arrived in Jerusalem. Four and a half months. All right, let's read in Ezra 9, starting in verse 1. After these things had been done, The officials approached me and said, The people of Israel and the priests and the Levites have not separated themselves from the peoples of the land with their abominations. From the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Jebusites, the Ammonites, the Moabites, the Egyptians, and the Amorites, for they have taken some of their daughters to be wives for themselves and for their sons, so that the holy race or better, the holy seed, has mixed itself with the peoples of the lands. 
And in this faithlessness, the hand of the officials and the chief men has been foremost. As soon as I heard this, I tore my garment and my cloak and pulled hair from my head and beard and sat appalled. Then all who trembled at the words of the God of Israel, because of the faithlessness of the returned exiles, gathered around me while I sat appalled until the evening sacrifice. So as BJ showed us last week, Ezra has come to Jerusalem to reconstitute the nation of Israel as a people under the law of God. He set his heart, he says, to study the law of the Lord and to do it and to teach his statutes in Israel. And presumably over the course of these four and a half months that he's been in town, that's exactly what he's been doing, teaching the law to the people. And now, now the officials come. They come with terrible news. They bring before him a crisis, a deep crisis of worldliness. The returned exiles have not separated themselves from the people of the lands with their abominations. They've taken these wives from the heathen nations around him so that the holy seed has mixed itself with the peoples of the lands. Now what do you make of this reaction of Ezra? How does he respond? With total shock and deep grief. He rips his clothes, rips hair from his head, and just collapses, appalled, and sits there stunned for hours until the time of the evening offering. This news has just completely devastated him. But we have to see why. We have to see why this is such a big deal. Well, because their behavior, the nation's behavior, has struck at the very heart of God's plan for Israel. In fact, God's plan for the whole world. Over and over again, the Lord made it clear to Israel that they are to be a holy people, a people set apart for his service and for his purposes because he himself is holy. So in Deuteronomy 7, 6, for instance, the Lord says, you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. They're special. They're set apart. And in the verses just before that, God tells them that that one way they must protect their holiness is that they cannot, they must not intermarry with the pagan nations. Why? Because such marriages will cause them to turn away from following God, the true God, to serve other false gods. When in fact... It's actually, God's plan is actually the reverse. He wants Israel and their holiness as a nation to draw other nations to the worship of the one true God. That's his plan. That's what's at issue here. The crisis, this is not about racial or ethnic purity. This is all about the purity of worship. Well, how do we know this? Well, we have we have. We have evidence. We have proof. We have proof in the stories of Rahab the Canaanite and Ruth the Moabite, right? They married men of Israel, didn't they? They're among the foremothers of King David and his royal house. But what had they done? They'd already rejected the false gods of their peoples, and they joined themselves wholly to the Lord. But there's another bit of proof that we can see even from the book of Ezra itself. Turn back quickly to chapter 6. Chapter 6 in Ezra. And look at verse 21. 
This is when the returned exiles are celebrating the Passover for the first time back in the Promised Land. Verse 21 says, The Passover was eaten by the people of Israel who had returned from exile, and also by everyone who had joined them and separated himself from the uncleanness of the peoples of the land to worship the Lord, the God of Israel. So if someone separates themselves from the people of the land to worship the Lord, they're welcomed into the community of God's people. But these converts had left behind all the uncleanness. That's why they're able to join with Israel. Now, if you're back in chapter 9, these foreign wives, these foreign wives had not. Verse 1, Israel has not separated from the peoples of the lands with their abominations. They, these women were still pagans. They hadn't left their old gods. They hadn't left their old detestable practices. And now, Jewish men supposedly worshiping Yahweh have brought these women and their gods into their homes. And how do you think that's going to go? So the holy seed has mixed itself with the people of the lands. Think back even to Genesis 3.15, the the first promise of the gospel. The holy seed, the seed of the woman, is at what? Is at enmity with the seed of the serpent. They're not supposed to marry them. There's hostility. And this is why Ezra is so totally distraught over Israel's entanglement. This is not an overreaction by some zealot. This is an absolutely appropriate reaction by Ezra to this entanglement. They are assimilating with the world. They are conforming to the world. They are compromising with the world. These men are going to, these wives are going to influence Israel's men and woo them into idolatry. And eventually they're going to end up, if they continue on this course, they're going to prove faithless and they will forsake the Lord to follow other gods. And soon they won't look any different from any of the other nations. Ezra knows his history. This kind of thing has happened before, hasn't it? Again and again and again. And it's brought God's wrath down upon the nation again and again and again. It's why they were exiled. They've only just got back. How could they fall into the same wickedness all over again. And what's the Lord going to do? How's he going to react? Obviously, Ezra needs to go before the Lord and bring the whole situation before him. And that's what he does in verse 5. So pick it up and read there. And at the evening sacrifice, I rose from my fasting with my garment and my cloak torn and fell upon my knees and spread out my hands to the Lord my God, saying, Oh my God, I am ashamed and blush to lift my face to you, my God, for our iniquities have risen higher than our heads, and our guilt has mounted up to the heavens. From the days of our fathers to this day, we have been in great guilt, and for our iniquities, we, our kings and our priests, have been given into the hand of the kings of the lands, to the sword, to captivity, to plundering, and to utter shame, as it is today. But now, for a brief moment, Favor has been shown by the Lord our God to leave us a remnant and to give us a secure hold within his holy place that our Lord may brighten our eyes and grant us a little reviving in our slavery. For we are slaves. Yet our God has not forsaken us in our slavery, but has extended to us his steadfast love before the kings of Persia to grant us some reviving to set up the house of our God 
to repair its ruins and to give us protection in Judea and in Jerusalem. And now, O our God, what shall we say after this? For we have forsaken your commandments, which you commanded by your servants the prophets, saying, The land that you are entering to take possession of it is a land impure with the impurities of the peoples of the lands, with their abominations that have filled it from end to end with their uncleanness. Therefore, do not give your daughters to their sons. Neither take their daughters for your sons and never seek their peace or prosperity that you may be strong and eat the good of the land and leave it for an inheritance to your children forever. And after all that has come upon us for our evil deeds and for our great guilt, seeing that you, our God, have punished us less than our iniquities deserved and have given us such a remnant as this, shall we break your commandments again and intermarry with the peoples who practice these abominations? Would you not be angry with us until you had consumed us, so that there should be no remnant, nor any to escape? O oh Lord, the God of Israel, you are just. For we are left a remnant that has escaped as it is today. Behold, we are before you in our guilt, for none can stand before you because of this. So here we see Ezra's second response to the crisis. As a priest of the Lord God, he identifies with sinful Israel and he confesses their sin. Notice throughout the prayer, he uses the pronouns we and us. He doesn't say, that's what they've done. It's what we've done. He includes himself in the sin of Israel. Now, of course, he's not personally guilty of the sin that sparked this crisis, but he is Israel's priest. He stands in their place. He represents them before the Lord. He is a mediator and he is an intercessor. And so he identifies himself with their sin. First, he rehearses Israel's sin throughout their history. All the way from the days of the fathers until now, we've been in great guilt. And he acknowledges, this is why we as a nation have been reduced to such a pitiable condition in the first place. But then he, he, he's amazed. He, he thanks God. You've granted to us a little reviving. This, this little period of time, you've given us a little reviving, a small measure of resurrection. When the remnant of Israel returned to Jerusalem. And despite the fact they're still in servitude to foreign kings, God's allowed them a little breathing space. But look how they've abused His grace What have they done with that breathing space? What have they done with the measure of freedom that His mercy has granted to them? They've gone right out and broken His commandments all over again. They've gone and done the very thing that the Lord had specifically charged them not to do and joined themselves to those who practice abominations and uncleanness. Done it all over again. saw a phrase last night that says, don't do stupid things again. Don't do stupid things. You, you're going to do it once? Okay. Don't do stupid things again. Amazingly, we see that Ezra doesn't even ask for forgiveness. He doesn't even come out and ask for further mercy. Now, I think it's obvious he hopes God will be merciful. But right now, his priority is to just get all this appallingly sickening situation out on the table before the Lord. And then he just confesses, God, you are just... It would be right of you if you were to wipe us all out with no remnant remaining. 
It would be just what we deserve. That's all he can say. We're guilty. We are guilty. Do with us what you will. Do with us what you will. But we see that his grief and his confession have provoked a good reaction in the people. So all this time he's been sitting in the dust, mourning, praying. More and more people have been gathering. All those who tremble, it says, at the words of the God of Israel. And now they are eager to act to resolve this crisis. His intercession has sparked their reaction of repentance. They want to see things made right. They want to repent. And so we move to chapter 10, verse 1. And we're going to see how Ezra's example leads Israel to confess their faithlessness. While Ezra prayed and made confession, weeping and casting himself down before the house of God, a very great assembly of men, women, and children gathered to him out of Israel, for the people wept bitterly. And Shechaniah, the son of Jehiel, of the sons of Elam, addressed Ezra. We have broken faith with our God, and we have married foreign women from the peoples of the land. But even now there is hope for Israel in spite of this. So Shechaniah steps up for the people. He admits, all this is true. Everything you've said, Ezra, is true. We have broken faith, just as we have done so many, many times before. But Shechaniah hasn't given up. He sees hope for Israel. He sees a way forward through repentance. And he's even got an idea for what to do about it, how to do it. Verse 3, Therefore, let us make a covenant with our God to put away all these wives and their children according to the counsel of my Lord and of those who tremble at the commandment of our God and let it be done according to the law. Arise, for it is your task And we are with you. Be strong and do it. So we have a proposal for repentance. Israel sinned against the Lord by not separating from the peoples of the land. Clearly the way to resolve this is to separate from the peoples. They must send away the pagan wives and the children. And they must do it according to the law of God. And so Shechaniah charges Ezra to get up and see this thing done. This is the reason the Lord's brought him to Jerusalem in the first place, to restore Israel under the law. Surely this is his moment, the moment for God's priest to deal with the sin of the people. That's what a priest does. But Shechaniah demonstrates that the resolve is clearly there among the congregation. They're going to be, they're ready for it. They're going to support him in this work. So now it's time to make the technical, practical arrangements. Verse 5. Then Ezra arose and made the leading priests and Levites in all Israel take an oath that they would do as it had been said. So they took the oath. Then Ezra withdrew from before the house of God and went to the chamber of Jehohanan, the son of Eliashib, where he spent the night, neither eating bread nor drinking water, for he was in mourning over the faithlessness of the exiles. And a proclamation was made throughout Judah and Jerusalem to all the returned exiles that they should assemble at Jerusalem. And that if anyone did not come within three days, by order of the officials and the elders, all his property should be forfeited and he himself banned from the congregation of the exiles. So first, 
Ezra deals with the immediate. He binds Israel then and there with a covenant oath that they're actually going to carry this plan out. And the priests and the Levites, who have been foremost, it says, in this great sin, they swear that this will happen. All the laity, all them swear it. All Israel swears this oath. And then Ezra withdraws. And he continues his intercession for Israel in private. And while he does that, a a public proclamation gets sent out to all the returned exiles through all their towns. Everyone's got to assemble in Jerusalem on the third day to discuss this matter of the intermarriage. If you're a no-show, you lose your property, and you're excommunicated from the congregation of Israel. These guys don't mess around. You thought we emphasized the importance of members' meetings. But we now need to take a moment to address the elephant in the room and think, think theologically about this plan of repentance itself. So Ezra's working to get Israel ready to send away over a hundred unbelieving spouses to break up over a hundred families. Can this really be the right course of action? After all, doesn't God hate divorce? And isn't it true that the New Testament only allows for it either when one spouse is unfaithful or if one spouse abandons the other? What about 1 Corinthians 7? There, believers are specifically commanded not to divorce an unbelieving spouse. So what's going on in our text? Is this really what God wants or is this just Ezra's idea? These are really tricky questions. Here's how I understand it. I think that this action that Ezra is taking is absolutely the correct one for this time and for this context. This separation is the costly, costly repentance that Israel needs to take. See, when they took these pagan wives with all their foreign gods and all their abominable practices in defiance of God's law. That created such a threat to the community of God's people that this extreme measure was necessary. It's such a deep violation of Israel's holiness. And the risk of Israel plunging into idolatry again is super high. So this is what repentance needs to look like for them. It would have been costly. It would have been so costly. But it was needed. In this situation, I think it was needed. Israel had to separate itself from the deadly influence of the world, no matter how high the cost. But we turn the page. Things have changed since Ezra's day. There's quite a bit different in our situation now. He and his contemporaries were living under the terms of the Old Covenant. But when Jesus came... He brought in a new and a better covenant. And practical righteousness does look different for us who are under the new covenant. And it should. That just makes sense. Because the new covenant is stronger and it's founded on better promises. And everyone who's part of the new covenant has the Holy Spirit dwelling inside them. That just wasn't the case under the old covenant. So in 1 Corinthians 7, when Paul commands believers to remain with their unbelieving spouses, he he reasons it out like this. 
an unbelieving husband is made holy because of his believing wife. And an unbelieving wife is made holy because of her husband. Now, Paul doesn't mean that that means the unbelieving spouse is saved. But in general, he expects the influences to run the other way now. Instead of the unbeliever wooing the believer into unfaithfulness, he trusts that in many cases, the believer is going to be able to woo the unbeliever to faith in Christ. Now, there's no guarantee He says that explicitly. Paul says it. You don't know that you're going to save your spouse. But, if we live under the new covenant with God's Spirit resident in us, we have a greater ability to resist the worldly influence of our non-Christian spouse. And in fact, you can gently influence them toward Jesus. Now that, hear me, is not an excuse to enter into marriage with an unbeliever if you're in Christ. That's still totally prohibited. What fellowship has light with darkness? You don't enter into that. But once you, once that bond is created, whether it's created because one person comes to Christ after marriage or because there's someone sinned and actually married an unbeliever, that marriage bond is still there. And the new covenant influence tends to work in this way, influencing the unbeliever toward Jesus. So in my view, this action that Ezra and the exiles took was for a particular time and a particular context. And repentance for them meant separating from these pagan wives. But hear me on this. Let no one here even begin to entertain or to justify thoughts of divorce on the grounds of, well, it was all right for the people in Ezra's day. No, because Jesus has made it perfectly clear. Husband and wife, no longer two. They're one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let not man separate. If there are marital difficulties, and there are marital difficulties. Come, seek help. Seek pastoral counsel for those. But unless the grounds Jesus and Paul give for divorce apply, do not even consider it. Okay, that's the end. We had to deal with that. End of my excursus on divorce. I think it was necessary for us to understand what Ezra was doing. Now let's read on at verse 9 and see how Israel has how Ezra leads Israel to follow through. Then all the men of Judah and Benjamin are assembled at Jerusalem within the three days. It was the ninth month on the twentieth day of the month. And all the people sat in the open square before the house of the Lord, trembling because of this matter and because of the heavy rain. And Ezra the priest stood up and said to them, You have broken faith and married foreign women and so increased the guilt of Israel. Now then, make confession to the Lord, the God of your fathers, and do his will. Separate yourselves from the peoples of the land and from the foreign wives. Then all the assembly answered with a loud voice, It is so... We must do as you have said. But the people are many, and it is a time of heavy rain. We cannot stand in the open, nor is this a task for one day or for two, for we have greatly transgressed in this matter. Let our officials stand for the whole assembly. Let all in our cities who have taken foreign wives come at appointed times, 
and with them the elders and judges of every city until the fierce wrath of our God over this matter is turned away from us. Only Jonathan, the son of Asahel, and Jaziah, the son of Tikvah, opposed this. Didn't practice that one. And Meshullam and Shabbatai, the Levite, supported them. Then the returned exiles did so. Ezra the priest selected men, heads of fathers' households, according to their fathers' houses, each of them designated by name. On the first day of the tenth month, they sat down to examine the matter. And by the first day of the first month, they come to the end of all the men who had married foreign women. And then there's a list of them. A list of many, over 110 men who have committed this sin. So it's the third day. It's December, and the rain is thick, and the rain is cold, but as is always appropriate for the third day, God is going to bring about a little resurrection. The people are trembling, yes, because of the rain, but also at the word of God. They're now under the weight of conviction. So when Ezra the priest stands up, charges them with their guilt, notice he's speaking for the Lord now, so he doesn't say, we have broken faith. He says, you have broken faith. He's speaking for the Lord. He lays their sin out before them and he calls them to repent and they say, yes. Yes, we've got to do what you say. They're ready. But because the process is going to be long, the sin goes deep, it can't be completed today, not with all the rain. So they make this counter-proposal that they'll come at special times in their cities and deal with this matter before judges that Ezra has appointed. Only a couple of guys don't like this plan. Maybe they didn't like the idea of putting the wives away. Or maybe they didn't like the idea of the delay. Maybe they wanted to get this done now. Who cares about a little rain? Let's repent. I don't know if we can tell this, but in any case, they're the minority view. And, and the whole assembly adopts this proposal and within three months, they finished going through the cases. And the crisis passes. Israel's repented of worldliness, and they are a nation set apart once more. And at the end of this process, what's the hope? Look back to verse 14. Verse 14. At the end of it, it says, They will follow through with this plan of repentance until the fierce wrath of God over this matter is turned away. So when this is all done, Ezra, as God's priest, will have dealt with his people's sin and seen God's wrath lifted from them through the process of repentance. All right, that leaves us with a question for ourselves. What about us? How are we supposed to leave this text without seriously looking in the mirror and confronting our own worldliness? Because that's what I believe is the conclusion God would have us draw from these last chapters. It is a matter of utmost seriousness that we as Christ's people keep ourselves unstained by the world and that we repent when we find ourselves entangled by the world and its lusts. We're the church of Jesus Christ. He calls us to be the light of the world. A city set upon a hill which will not be hidden. And now Jesus has brought in the new covenant and all those who believe in him, Jew and Gentile, are the Israel of God. We're the chosen race. We're the royal priesthood and the holy nation. We're the, now the new people for God's own possession. 
But that means we got to act like it. we got to be set apart. The world has to be able to sense that the church is something different. It looks and it feels and it smells different. And what is that difference? It's holiness. It's holiness. But here's the problem. The world is going to oppose us at every turn. The world doesn't want us to be different. This world, which is in rebellion against God, the world system, as it tries to function without respect to God, it hungers to conform all things to itself, including me, including you. It wants to assimilate you into its rebellion. And so it woos, and it entices, and it makes all sorts of attractive offers. It holds out for us the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the boastful pride of life and says, come and take it. And so scripture calls us to shut our ears to its offers. Do not love the world or the things of the world. The Apostle John warns, if anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. And sometimes, like in Ezra's day, God's people are caught. Because it takes real effort. It takes effort to live according to God's commands, even with the Holy Spirit that we have. The world is just constantly trying to pull us off course. And then the devil whispers to us, just give in. Let it go. This isn't much of a compromise. Resistance is futile. And we give in. We give in. And we let the world conform us to itself. Now I ask you, is that really all that big of a deal? Well, let's let the Apostle James speak to it. Here's what he says. You adulteresses. You adulteresses. Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. You bet it's serious. Ezra had it right. Worldliness is appalling. And if you and I could see our compromises and our little flirtations with the world rightly, the way Jesus see them, we too would be on the floor undone. We'd collapse. We'd throw dust on our head. We'd sit and we'd stare into space, horrified. Now, I remember when I got a tiny taste of that feeling. Right after college, I was a substitute teacher at CVU High School. For one class, I was given a movie to show. And at the end of the movie, one of the movie's main characters, who is paralyzed from a car accident, commits suicide. And the movie portrays this as a noble and heroic act and as an alternative way for this guy to fulfill his destiny. And it's all very heart-rending, and the music soars, and you get all the feels. But I remember getting into my car to go home that day and I got to suddenly thinking, oh my goodness, good grief. This movie has gotten me to feel like this man killing himself is somehow noble and heroic. For a moment, I'd been enticed and conformed to that evil worldview. It was appalling. It's as the theologian David Wells says, I love this quote, worldliness is that system of values which makes sin look normal and righteousness look strange. 
That's what worldliness does. Makes sin look normal. Makes righteousness look strange. But brothers and sisters, let's just admit, we don't often see our flirtations with the world as all that serious. And I doubt if many of us are in the regular habit of confessing worldliness as serious sin before the Lord. But it is. May God grant that we would actually grieve after lusting for the world. That we would grieve it as unfaithfulness to Jesus, to our beloved bridegroom. It's it's faithlessness. Now I want us to just look at some specific examples of how the world seeks to conform us to its ideas and its lusts and its priorities. These might feel a little scattershot to you, but they're all examples of the ways that the world is eager to get its claws into us. And when we get entangled with these things and these ideas, our holiness gets compromised. And we start looking no different from the world. Okay, I'm just going to go through some of them. What about our idea of the good life? The world says that the good life is comfortable, with good health, and plenty of money, and lots of time for ourselves and our pursuit of leisure. leisure. Right? The scriptures say that these things are vanity and chasing after the wind. And that the good life involves suffering as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. Which is our vision. For young people, a variation on this might be that youth is the best time to have as much fun as you can. So take a good, long time after you get out on your own to indulge all your desires before you settle down to the boring work of being a faithful Christian and a weight-bearing church member and a faithful husband or wife, a godly dad or mom. That's for later when you're done being cool. Eventually you can settle once you've lived a little. So what's your vision, young people? Solomon tells you to remember your creator in the days of your youth and to serve him with the strength of your early years before the evil days come. All right, what about our ideas of morality? What does the world say? The world says that it's not wrong if it doesn't hurt anyone. But if someone does feel hurt, then you must have done something wrong. Whereas the Lord says that he is the standard of righteousness And there are things that are evil and wicked even if everybody in the room is enjoying themselves. And the the call of the world on this one is strong. Come on, who's this hurting? Really? In fact, if you call this sin, that would hurt someone that you care about. If you call that sin, they'd feel betrayed if if you did that. So just let it go. I'm going to piggyback off BJ's parenting talk this morning. You can ask for it if you want it. This is a really practical one. Parents, the world would have you believe that your child needs to be a free agent with total self-determination. And therefore, exercising authority over them is actually oppressive. And this idea about using the rod, actually spanking them for disobedience, that is just completely barbaric. What century are we living in? And so children left to run their own lives becomes the norm. And God's patterns for discipline and correction and authority are rejected as offensive. See? Sin is made normal. Righteousness looks strange. What about for us as wives and husbands? Wives, the world tells you to expect that your husband is a doofus. About three ticks higher than Homer Simpson. 
So you can't really be expected to trust him to lead. You need to make sure that your ideas carry the day, otherwise all the wheels are just bound to come off. Husbands, what about you? Are you listening to the world when it says that it's unloving to lead your wife when she's clearly so much more capable than you? Which for a number of us is true. So really, you need to let her have her head, otherwise the wheels will probably come off. That's the message the world is projecting to us today. What about another realm? Subtle pressure towards favoritism and clickishness and prejudice. Worldliness says that at the end of the day, aren't the people who are like you and who think like you and have the same interests as you, aren't they really more valuable than those that you don't just gel naturally with? And so what do we do? We spend our time at church talking to the same five people who we really feel most comfortable with. And if we end up hanging with someone outside of Sunday morning, it's someone from that list of five. And what does the Lord call us to? He calls us to reject that kind of thinking and to impartially love our brothers and sisters. And so in these and in countless, countless other ways... The world tries to squeeze us into its mold, into its worldview. Sometimes it uses the appeals of idols that are just intrinsically wicked, like illicit lust. Sometimes the world tempts us to twist God's good gifts and worship them as idols. With what result? Individual Christians who look no different from their unbelieving friends. And Christian families that are just as dysfunctional as their unbelieving and Christian churches that look no different from the world. And that's appalling. But is God going to open our eyes here at RGC to see that? And will God give us Ezra's perspective that says, Oh Lord, I am ashamed, and I blush as I lift my face to you, for our iniquities have risen higher than our heads. And that it would be more than just trite phraseology. So we need the Lord to grant us repentance. We need Him to bring us low over this kind of sin. Would that our appetites would change so worldliness would set off our gag reflex. That holiness would taste sweet in our mouths. But despite all our compromise, gosh, would that God would would bring us to repentance such that we just had to close the service after the baptism just because we were weeping over our sin and our worldliness. What will he do with us? Well, despite all our compromise and all our little love affairs with the world, there is still hope for Israel, as Shechaniah would say, because we too have God's priest, a faithful high priest who is able to deal with our sin. See, the Lord Jesus came into this world to address our crisis of faithlessness. We'd broken faith with our God, And so Jesus appeared in the flesh and shared our human nature. Even though he was the spotless lamb who kept himself perfectly holy, perfectly separate from sin, free from every defilement, yet he identified with us in our sin. First off, he, he underwent John's baptism for repentance. Because in order to fulfill all righteousness, he had to stand as the lamb of God in our place. He had to represent God's repentant people. But then in a supremely glorious way, he identified us with the cross, 
where he actually took our sin, united ourself and him, took our sin and our faithlessness and took our shame and he removed God's wrath for us because he transferred it onto himself. And he suffered in our place. And in this way, by identifying and dealing with our sin, he removed it from us forever. And now he's given us his holiness. But we must understand this cleansing and this forgiveness and this removal of wrath, it's only available the same way it was in Ezra 9. It's only available to those who will repent. So if there's anything this passage teaches us, it's that repentance and costly repentance is required. And we see that repentance means confession of sin. And it means following through and turning from sin to holiness. That's why some of you here aren't Christians. That's why you're not Christians. You actually understand that Jesus' call to follow him will cost you. You know, you've identified something You've said, I know that repentance will mean giving up that. And you don't want to pay that cost. That's why some of you here that profess faith in Jesus are in hiding today. Concealing secret sin. Nobody knows it except you and God. You know that Jesus charges you to confess it and turn from it. But the cost of repentance seems too high and you don't want to pay it. Listen, friends, I understand. You're right. The cost of repentance may indeed be incredibly high. It might require excruciatingly difficult conversations. It might require forgiving someone you hate. It could cost you your reputation. You might have to go down to the police station and confess a crime. Repentance is costly. It costs these men their wives. It will cost you something. That's why Jesus said, count the cost. But if we understand the depth of our guilt, if we understand God's hatred of our sin, if we rightly see how loathsome it is, and if we understand what Jesus endured to secure our forgiveness, then we will realize that no cost is too high. And then we will grieve and mourn, and confess our sins, and truly forsake the world and its lusts to follow after holiness. So if you're here as a sinner outside of Christ, come to the cross. Come to the cross and find repentance and forgiveness. And if you're a believer, come again to the cross and find it all over again. And may God makes, uh, make us a church that loathes sin and loves holiness. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, how, do, how will you need to sift us, individually and as a church? What will it take for us to take our sin and our worldliness seriously, that we would not be conformed to it in its lust, but that we would be a people set apart? I'm not saying that Things are as bad with us as it could be, but I know it could be better. I know we could be more faithful and holy. And that only comes through repentance and turning once again to the cross where we see in Jesus a Savior who takes away all our sin. 
Lord, may we be people of the cross and therefore people of repentance. We pray in Jesus' name.